Hey listener, thanks for joining us for TRP's weekly podcast. The Restoration Project is a cooperative Baptist fellowship church located in Salisbury, Maryland. We are currently teaching through the book of Exodus. It's an important ancient story about God rescuing the Hebrew people from forced labor in Egypt. This story informs much of what Israel believed about God, and it recurs throughout the Old Testament. The themes sounded in the story ultimately reach their climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, who leads people out of a different form of slavery and oppression into life and hope. If you would like more information on the Restoration Project, you can check us out on Facebook or head over to our website at restoresby.org. Enjoy the episode. So if you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we have been spending some time in the book of Exodus, and this week we've got uh, what I would deem to be quite a difficult passage. Um, However, over the last couple weeks in particular, we have been looking at the plague narratives, also uh, opening up its own set of difficulties for us as we try to understand what it is that God is up to as he has taken Moses and given him this task to lead the Israelite people out of bondage and slavery and servitude in Egypt and bring them into, ultimately, into the promised land. And this task that Moses has to go and to have an audience with the number one head honcho of this vast empire and advocate for a people that is on the margins and the outskirts and to say, let us go. It's been difficult as we've seen this because throughout these plagues, Pharaoh has not, in fact, let these people go. And we actually knew that from the very beginning of the story. But the things that God is doing and showing in the midst of Egypt, showing his power and showing his his might and showing his betterness than Pharaoh as the empire leader of the time and also the Egyptian gods, we see God demonstrating his power in ways that might shake us a bit. One scholar says of our passage this week, he says, yet one more plague. The end is near, an impasse has been reached. There is no more room to maneuver. The stream of negotiation has reached the narrows and the waters are shortly going to go crashing through the gorge. There is no stopping things now, he writes. A final judgment will fall upon Pharaoh and Egypt. And it's with this, as we lead into the 10th and final plague, the climactic ending of Moses advocating for this people and God flexing his muscles and showing his power and his might over this people, that we reach this final climactic plague. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, it's actually the entire chapter in Exodus 11, to frame our discussion. Uh, This evening, this is Exodus chapter 11, beginning in verse one. It says, now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward the people. And Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. 
from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. The word of God for the people of God. So what I'd like to do this evening is just um, call our attention to a couple of details in this passage that we have just read together. In particular, as we we think through this chapter, there's a couple things that come off the page uh, that we should at least address, partly because I think that they're interesting and partly because in, in doing our due diligence, they can maybe help us understand what's going on in this passage. Now it says, especially in the New International Version of the Bible, and I enjoy talking about this because I think it brings to light some of the oddities of English translations in the Bible, but I do not bring this up to sow any seeds of doubt or distrust in the English Bibles that you have, but what's going on here is the NIV has made a translation decision for you. Okay, now where it says, now the Lord had said, what they're doing is putting this conversation in the past. Why are they doing that, you might ask? And that would be a beautiful question, budding exegetes of the biblical text. Pat yourselves on the back if you came to this conclusion. In the very last passage that we did not study together at the end of chapter 10, Moses has been talking with Pharaoh about the plague of darkness that has just shown up. And this plague, as many of the plagues in in Egypt are, it was a symbol of God's power over the Egyptian authorities and the Egyptian gods of the time. So in this uh, particular context, Egypt is worshiping the sun god, but God says, no, I'm just going to go ahead and turn the lights off for a bit. And Pharaoh and Moses are talking about this and and what's going on. And Moses is advocating for the people saying, let us go. And Pharaoh's trying to drive a hard bargain by saying, you can only go if that and the other. And what happens at the end of this passage is these two individuals just get really heated. It says in uh, chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord had made Pharaoh stubborn so that he wasn't willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of here. Make sure you never see my face again because the next time you see my face, you will die. And Moses says, you've said it. I'll never see your face again either. Are you guys catching the, the tension that's going on here? But as Moses is leaving and he's interacting with Pharaoh, he's saying, get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. And in the very next passage, we have another interchange between Moses and Pharaoh. So what the NIV translators are doing is saying, this is happening back before Moses had left in a huff. That's right. You've said it, Pharaoh, and you will never see my face again. And one more thing, all of your firstborns are going to die. 
Your reaction is right there because it shouldn't elicit much laughter from you because this is an intense passage. But what's happened here is Moses is advocating for these people and he's leaving in this fit of rage. At the end of this passage in chapter 11, it says Moses is hot with anger because of what Pharaoh has said. He just doesn't get it, guys. He doesn't see. He's had 10 chances to let these people go and he will not let them go. And Moses is fed up and says, I will never see you again. And I have one more message for you. And this is the one that we didn't want to get to, but it's going to happen. You need to hear it on the way out of the door. It's not going to get better for you, Pharaoh. In fact, it's going to get much, much worse. There's this moment Right between these two, and it's, it's kind of tied up here. Now the Lord had said this has happened in the past, and it's just interesting for us to, to bring this chronology into play. We also note that the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. This is called the plundering of Egypt. When Israel leaves, they're to ask their neighbors for gold and silver. It's an odd request, is it not? But they've been underneath of the thumb of this dictator for so long that they end up having this favorably disposed neighbors and they say, um, well, you know, on our way out, if you wouldn't mind, I guess we'll just go ahead and take, take your watch. Your earrings are nice. Just go ahead and take those too. I mean, this is a weird passage here, but they have made, uh, the Lord had made the Egyptians favorably disposed toward them, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by everyone except Pharaoh. Moses has demonstrated the power of God through these signs, and we have seen how God is showing himself to be better than Pharaoh and all of Egypt's gods. And now everyone is pretty much on team Moses here, except for the one whose vote counts more than everyone else's. Moses was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's official and by all of the people. And then we get to this, it says, every firstborn son in Egypt will die. This is the message that is going out to Pharaoh, from the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her hand mill. What's happening here is the complete polar opposites which within the social structure of ancient Egypt, from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows, from the king of all the land with all of his riches to the slave woman who is at her hand mill. Everyone will suffer under this 10th and final plague so much so that there will be a loud wailing throughout Egypt. This is the same term that's used earlier in the, in the book of Israel's loud wailing to God because of their slavery and their servitude. And now the tables have completely turned where Israel is now not the ones wailing, but they are the ones leaving and going into freedom and life and hope, a little bit richer than they were before, might I add. And now all of the Egyptians from the highest of the highs to the lowest of the lows are wailing and crying and screaming for a different fate. It says all these officials, and this is where um, the, the text it seems to be a little bit ambiguous, but it seems as though Moses is saying, all these officials of yours, Pharaoh, will come to me, not to God, will come to me, bowing down before me, saying, go, you, Moses, and all the people who follow you, Moses. And after that, I, Moses, will leave. Some people say this is where Moses finally catches his, his step, if that's even a saying. 
Remember in the beginning when God shows up to Moses in the burning bush and Moses has all this laundry list of reasons why he could not be used by God. He's got these objections and these, these weaknesses that he's seen in his own life. He's like, oh, I can't do that. I'm not going to, but no, please send somebody else. I just don't want to. But now we see Moses saying, all of your people, they will come and they will bow down to me and I will leave just like we were supposed to do in the beginning. And for some scholars, they say this is when Moses becomes the person that God is wanting Moses to become. Finally becoming the leader that will take this group of servants and slaves and bring them into the promised land. And then it concludes, then then Moses, hot with anger. Remember, he has just been threatened with his life. The next time you see me, I will kill you. Then Moses, hot with anger, he leaves. Now, these are interesting points, I guess, if you're just looking at these 10 verses in the book of Exodus. But really, if you're paying attention at all, to what is going on here. There's one overarching concern that we have as we come to this passage, namely, what is God doing? How has it gotten so far now that the thing that he needs to do is to kill children? And especially for any of us that have turned on the news over the last week and we've seen the images, the atrocious images of violence in Syria, now if we've seen this images of violence in, in Egypt, we, we now are, it's, it's somewhat personal for us. We have these, these images in our mind, and we read this text and we say, gosh, what do we do with that? How do we square away the love of God, the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God with the death of countless Egyptian children? One scholar says, the intentional destruction of innocent life in God's slaying of the firstborn has long troubled readers of this narrative. This is not new to us. Specifically, she asks, what kind of deity was it whose deeds could benefit one group at the expense of others? What kind of God is it that says, Israel is my people, and it doesn't really matter what happens to Egypt here. I'm going to bring about my will. Now, the slide that I had up before this that I didn't really talk about was one of the main um, difficulties that we have is coming to the text as a 21st century postmodern American reader, and we import all of that goodness onto an ancient story, and we expect it to work with the same rules that we have in our 21st century postmodern American culture. Can I get an Amen. You do this. Inherently, intuitively, you do this. We also bring our baggage as um, men or as women, as middle class or as uh, lower class. Or We, we um, have these uh, backgrounds and experiences. For many of you, when you open up the Bible, even this story that we're talking about right now, you're on the edge of your seat because you're like, yeah, that's the God I know. I'm ticked at him. I don't like him. I don't even know why I'm here right now, but I can't handle this story. And you're twitching and you're getting ready to run out of here because this image of God, it it rubs up against the grain because your story, perhaps with your parents or the people that were in authoritative positions over you, they have wronged you in a severely, ridiculously hurtful way. 
And now you have imported that into your view of who God is. This is what we do intuitively and inherently. This is why it's not good enough for us to wake up in the morning at 5.30 a.m. when that alarm clock goes on on our phone and we hit snooze five or six times because who wakes up at 5.30? But when we do finally roll out of bed, we just go to our kitchen table and we start reading the Bible by ourselves. That's a great spot to be. However, I think within American Christianity, we have sold that as the end all be all. But what I would submit to you is, it's also good and important to read in community, to read with people that do not have your same baggage or your same viewpoint. As a white middle-class man, it is very important for me to hear from my brothers and sisters in Christ from a different culture, from a different background, people that are reading the text in a very different way that can bring about points to me that I, on my own, would never arrive at. But what we have done, folks, we've limited God and the move of the Spirit to our 21st century, Western, enlightened, postmodern, American reading of the Bible, where me as one person in Salisbury, Maryland, can flip open and find the one right reading of all time. It's a bit arrogant when we play it out that way, and it's important for us to be reading in community, especially when we come to a text like this. Now, I also know that for some of you in the room right now, you like to come to church so that you can get the answer. That will not happen this evening. And I apologize in advance to you, but rather I just want to take this text and look at it and hopefully bring some important um, aspects of it to life so that we can understand what's going on. But because it's so difficult, this has led to people rationalizing the text, saying things like, oh, they, I guess they deserved it. And this is what we do sometimes when we, we want to get, this is going to not sit well with you, but we want to get God off the hook as 21st century postmodern Americans, we say, oh, well, there must have been something to rationalize what's going on in this passage. And we've seen throughout the history of interpretation people doing that. We've also seen this, and this, I know, I can sense the, the, the pulse of the room right now. You guys are tired. You guys are not in the mood for humor. You are just wanting me to get to the point and say a prayer and we can all go home to see who won the masters, okay? No, I say to you, we've got stuff to do. We have got work to do this evening, but you're not going to like this point, okay? So some people, they have rationalized this text to try to make sense of what God is doing. Other people, and this is, I would even say the large majority of scholars, what they have done is they've looked at this text from a literary standpoint, because if you can look at it as literature, it kind of gets you off the hook as to the specific details of the passage, whether or not they have happened, just like the Bible has said they would. I'm ducking behind the pew just so that you guys don't get up and throw stuff at me. But this would be called an ahistorical approach where they say, yeah, there's stuff in here, but it didn't really work out that way in real life. So that kind of gives us some, some leeway with what we understand is going on in the passage. Okay? Now, just go back with me for a moment to last week when we talked about these plagues. We talked about how there was literary artistry in the presentation of these 10 plagues. How many plagues were there? 
10 plagues. I'm just gonna throw random questions at you just to make sure you're tracking with me, okay? But there's 10 plagues, and the way that they are portrayed in the Bible demonstrates literary artistry or at least some kind of structure to it. Specifically, there's three series of plagues, and each series contains three plagues. So we see the first series here, which is um, God turning the water of the Nile into blood, and then God sending the frogs onto the land, and then God um, bringing gnats uh, onto the people and to the animals. And in each of those three different plagues, there's a structure that happens. In the first one, Moses and Aaron are instructed to go out to the Nile, where Pharaoh will show up each morning and tell him what is going to happen and to plead to let the people go and to give him an opportunity to let that happen, but he does not let them go. So the second sign, they'll show up and they'll be in the palace and they'll say, we've got another thing that's gonna happen. We need you to, to listen to this and you need to let us go. And then the third sign, after, after Pharaoh has not done anything with the first sign or the second sign, he just brings about this third plague. And this happens three times in the same series. They meet Pharaoh at the Nile, then they meet Pharaoh in the palace, and then a sign just comes out of nowhere. And this happens three different times. And there's a structure to it in the passage, especially when you, um, when you compare it to Psalm 78, which also talks about the plagues, but it only lists seven of them, and they're in a different order. Or when you compare it with Psalm 105, and you get uh, eight of them, I believe, and they're also in a different order. So there's a structure that the author or the editors of Exodus are trying to do to make this story look a certain way to prove a theological or an ethical point. Did you follow that? So some people say there's literary artistry that's happening here, and these stories might not be told in the exact way that they happened in history. That's a tough thing for us to hear, and I just want you to know that that's an option. Okay, before you get up and you, you get out of here, just that is an option that a lot of critical scholars go with. Um, I'm reading one commentary where her basic point is, oh, you know, this didn't really happen in history, so it gets us off the hook as to how to explain this away. Now, I just want to throw something at you because throughout this depiction of, of what's going on here, this, the way the stories are told, it's at least noted that they're hyperbolic. All of my English majors in the room, you know what I mean when I say hyperbolic. The author or the editor is, is using hyperbole to get a point across. For example, when God plagues the livestock, it says that all of them suffer and die. And then we have in, in the 10th plague, there's still livestock left to be killed. So there's this hyperbole that God is using to get a point across, and this is the way that the ancient people told stories. Now, I want to get to this because I think it's important. And the first time I heard this, it, it wrecked my brain, which is, makes it not really good sermon fodder, but we're going to go there this evening. Why? Because I'm hopeful. <laughs> okay? At the end of this story in chapter, I believe it's at the end of chapter 12, when Israel finally leaves from Egypt, it says that there are 600,000 men. Okay? If that's the case, most scholars would then say that with wives and with kids, that that would mean that there's two to three million Israelites leaving Egypt to cross the Red Sea and to go wander in the wilderness for a few years and eventually get into the promised land. That is a lot of people. One scholar says 600,000 men implies a company of two or three million with women and children, which would mean the Israelites were as numerous as the Egyptians 
and far more numerous than the population of Canaan where they were going to take over the land or than the Israelites themselves ever were when they lived in Canaan through Old Testament times or than the peoples in Palestine in the first half of the 20th century. If this text is saying there's this many people, more people than there ever have been for the majority of human history, it would seem that this story is being told again hyperbolically. Okay, hold on to that. The next one's gonna get you even more because this one, I've been thinking about it for the last five, six, seven years. Another scholar says that Exodus tells this story and it reports that 600,000 Israelites of fighting age, they left Egypt and this number plus their wives, whatever, this guy comes up to two and a half million or so. And now he's gonna talk about when they cross the Red Sea and he puts them in marching orders. And he says, if we put them in marching orders, 10 people across, it will create a line over 150 miles long to account for all of these people. And that would have required eight or nine days to march by any fixed point. You guys seen the movie Ten Commandments? It is not like that. It doesn't take eight or nine days for people to go from point A to point B across the Red Sea. So then some people would say, in light of all of this stuff, we should maybe think about a literary or an ahistorical reading of these plague narratives in order to get God off of the hook a bit. Now, as you're sitting there, please note that this is just one perspective of some of the details of this story and one perspective that other reputable scholars seem to disagree with as well. Okay, but what the point is, in this story, there's difficulties that are being introduced and some people try to rationalize what God is doing and some people try to say, well, there's a literary way you can approach this or an ahistorical way that you can approach this. But even still, at the very end of the day, I don't care what you do with the historical stuff, this is where we all meet The depiction of God in this story is absolutely difficult for us to wrestle with and for us to reconcile. And again, as 21st century American readers, we begin to import and say, I don't know how to make these things go together where this is a God that's worthy of worship. Again, hearing Carol Meyer, she says, what kind of a deity was it whose deeds could benefit one group at the expense of others? And just in the limited interactions that I've had with you in my time as a pastor, this is one of the questions that people have, one of the two questions that people have a lot. One, yeah, we're talking about the violence of the Old Testament. How do we deal with that in our context, whether it's this or whether it's as we go on and Israel is uh, destroying entire people groups in the promised land? How do we deal with that? How do we deal with the violence in the Old Testament that God seems to be bringing people into? But the other thing that we have struggles with and difficulties with is the exclusivity of the Christian faith. I got an email just this past week. Hey, Josh, what do I do with my Muslim neighbors who are great people? How do I talk to them about Jesus when they seem to know more than I do about living holy, merciful, loving, forgiving lives? Or uh, another email, hey, Josh, what do you do with the people that have never heard of, of Jesus? When they die, do they go straight to hell? And at the core of these questions is, is God really this exclusive where he privileges one set of people over another? And who's going to make it at the end? 
These are the questions that we think about, and sometimes texts like this, it brings out in us this, this issue that we begin to wrestle with. And the best that I can do for us, the best that I can do, and the way that I can try to lead us through this is to go back to my main man, N.T. Wright, because he does have answers for us from time to time. And he says this, not about Egypt and not about the plagues and not about violence in the Old Testament, but he says, to understand any event in history, and again, just to solidify this, I totally believe that the Exodus happened and I totally believe that the plagues happened, even if we're talking about this hyperbole in the Old Testament and different ways that people are approaching the Bible, okay? Just tuck that away. But to understand any event in history, this one included, you must put it firmly into that history and not rest content with what later generations have said about it. In order for us to understand what God is doing here in this 10th and final plague, we cannot read it as 21st century postmodern Americans. We must get back into the ancient world of Israel and begin to wrestle with what is going on in the text itself. And maybe if this helps us just enter into the world of this narrative, the things that we struggle and wrestle with are not the same things that they would have struggled and wrestled with in the way that they were unpacking these stories for future generations. And we must respect that and we must attempt to get back into that world to understand what it is that they're wanting their audience to know about who God is and who Israel was. So that's what we're going to do over the next few minutes. I don't think this is going to take long, although I say that from time to time, but I believe it tonight. I am naming it, and I am claiming it, and we are putting a flag in the ground, and I think that we'll be able to be okay here. But we do have to learn to reread the plague of the firstborn, and I have that in italicized font because that's the key to this story, understanding the role of the firstborn in the ancient Near Eastern culture. I'm wrestling with whether or not to tell this story because I don't know if this is good parenting or bad parenting, but there is a, a certain something about a firstborn. There's a different relationship that I have with Abe, our three-year-old, than I do with Jude, our almost one-year-old. Abe and I have been through a lot more together. <laughs> I, I love Jude. He's a funny kid. He seems in no hurry whatsoever to walk or to talk or to do anything. He just kind of sits there and he hangs out. He's, he's, he's beautiful. He's got cheeks that are the size of my thighs. Uh, I don't know where they've come from, but he's, he's a cute kid and he's, he's got a lot of spunk and tenacity. We are already seeing that Abe, um, Katie Foster pointed this out, Abe is like the miniature version of me, which is nice because I think the world needs more of me, uh, but Abe has all of the qualities that make me the quirky version of me, you know? Like, he's very particular about things. Uh, he goes to school here at Asbury, and I guess Kate was the class mom a week or so ago, and Abe has, like, this, this routine that he does where when it's snack time, he sits in a certain chair, and if he doesn't get to sit in that chair, he loses his gourd. Or uh, when the woman's going around with the snacks, he's like, put it right here. And if you move it, he's like, nope, right here. And I'm flashing back to when I was going to school. This has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. If I'm flashing back to, but you needed this and I needed this and we all needed this, um, going to school as a kindergartner and when my mom would put my socks on, I guess I wasn't putting on my own socks back then, but she was also putting on my shoes. But you know how there's like a little stitching at the, at the edge of uh, your socks. When it was like off-centered, I would like lose it. My socks right again. I, I don't think I was uh, addressing myself at the time, but very particular. 
But anyway, Abe is the firstborn. And like, I'll never forget going from married man to dad. The difference that, that he has brought about in our lives and um, Abe's status as firstborn, even here right now for me, it's, it, there's a difference there. And parents, you can talk to me later if that's real or if that's just something I'm imagining or if that's something I should never say out loud in public again, I'm not sure. But when we approach this passage, we do need to understand what's going on with the firstborn. Now, before we get there, I do want to at least preface what's going on here. And this can, this can alleviate some of the tension in this passage as well, because inevitably, whenever we go to an Old Testament story where violence is included, we see God as the one who is just bringing the hammer down and he's petty and he's like vindictive and he's bloodthirsty and he just wants to punish people. And that's a bad reading of scripture right off the bat, because God throughout the text has been patient and he has demonstrated um, his loving kindness slow to anger. These are all truths about the character of God that we see even in the Old Testament. And in chapter four, this was eight chapters previously, God's talking to Moses. And he said, the Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. And this is where it gets difficult, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let people go. And this is where we stumble in this passage in particular. But at least know that within the Hebrew Bible, there's 10 usages of this verb, the hardening of the heart. 10 of them are God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And the other 10 are Pharaoh saying, I will harden my own heart. I do not believe that even in this story, God is manipulating Pharaoh's character to give him something that he does not want himself. We have these images, especially the church people, and I don't know what your story was growing up, but you, I'm sure that you've heard the gospel, and I'm sure the way that you've heard the gospel is if you don't accept Jesus, you're going to go to hell. This is me like dangling you over the flames of hell, because that's the image, right? And I remember being in school as a little kid and just seeing these images of fire on the chalkboard during Bible time as a five-year-old student. And I was traumatized. But we have this, this picture of that. And, and for me, it took so long to think that the image was just me or whoever just saying, I don't want to be here. Get me out of here. God, do something. And God saying, no. <laughs> Pretty sick. Okay. I had lots of weird thoughts. I also thought that if I did find my way into hell at some point that I could become buddies with Satan and that would be a good time and we would just be okay down there bad theology, guys. I don't know what happened to me as a child, but there was a lot of things that were wrong, okay? But here, what we see is, in this passage, God is not giving people what they don't want, and he's not forcing people to be in a place where they want to be somewhere, somewhere else. Pharaoh is the one who, his number one concern is the empire and his own status, and his greatness as a ruler, and he will do whatever he needs to do to make that happen. He is not one who in his heart of hearts wants to release these people. This is not God taking his will and contorting it and manipulating it to do something that Pharaoh is not wanting to do. It's still difficult because we do have the role of God at some point in this story that's hardening the heart, and we don't necessarily know what's going on here, but... <clears throat> The, the line continues, and he says, Say to Pharaoh, Moses, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me, but you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. This is in chapter four. 
Pharaoh knew what was coming and he knew what was going on. And instead of that image of God up here, ha, 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 finally I get to destroy people. See the image of God that we see all throughout the other pages of scripture where he is weeping with those who don't get it and don't want to get it and saying, I don't want this to be the story here. I don't want this to be how it goes. And this is the same image that we have of God when we make those decisions that put us into a different place or put us away from where God is wanting us to be. It's not one where God is waiting anxiously to punish us. It's a God whose heart is breaking over his children who are going in the opposite direction. But Pharaoh has known this from the very, very beginning. But the key to this story is understanding the father's right to the firstborn in the ancient Near Eastern context. This is not like our context. This is not just me and Abe hanging out. For people back then, the firstborn son, it was like your lifeline. It was your social security, more or less. It was like your, the continuance of your, of your name, And God's saying, Israel is that for me. They are my people. And because, Pharaoh, you have taken them and you have hurt them, there must be restitution. And perhaps we could even import, this is not something that um, we want to see happen, but we know that this is going to be the only way, Pharaoh, that you understand what is going on here. But God is saying, these are my kids. And I have to protect them. And we also see in this in the story that Yahweh is on the side of the oppressed. God is on the side of the oppressed. And again, I just want to sneak this in here for us in our context. Are we? And how do we manifest that, that care and concern that we have that God has modeled for us as he take, took us off of the margins, the outskirts, and brought us into this family? How do we enact that in our lives? It can be as easy as you walking into the library and you seeing that person, whoever that is for you, and you say, oh, I didn't want to see them today because I don't want to have to talk to them and I don't want to be nice to them and I don't want to emanate the love of Christ in their life right now. I just want to go read my book. Have you been there? For me, it's not the library so much as it is going into Walmart and you see those people and you're like, I'd prefer not to have to see these people. So then you duck into aisle two as your shopping is going on. And now all of you are thinking, if I see Josh in public, is he gonna, has, he, has he tried to duck me in public? No, of course not. Of course, of course not. But Yahweh is showing himself to be the one who's on the side of the oppressed here. And I think that's at least worth our pause and saying that's a model that we should exemplify as well. How are we? Yahweh is also, and this is, I think, the key point of this passage, Yahweh is demonstrating his sovereignty and his power. This is the, this is the whole point of the plague narratives. I'll never say that it's not going to take long ever again. I've told myself that a lot, and it's just not true. I'm sorry. If you need to know who won the Masters, then that's what smartphones are for, and nobody will judge you, Okay but just don't tell me because I'd prefer to look myself. Okay, but God's sovereignty and God's power, he's demonstrating himself to be better than Pharaoh, better than Egypt's gods. He is demonstrating himself to be the one who is sovereign over all things and powerful over all things. When we look at these plague narratives, again, it's not just God bringing up frogs from the Nile into people's houses and into the bowls that they need dough with. This is God saying, you know that God that you have, the goddess of fertility whose head is shaped like a frog? Yeah, I'm better than she is or the God of the sun that was really important for uh, Egypt at this time. God 
taking the sun completely out of the game and darkening the world. God's saying like, yeah, that's, that's me, I'm doing that. And this 10th and final plague, the God Osiris, the God of death in Egypt, Egyptian culture, like we have God saying, yeah, I'm actually the one who's better than over that. I'm, uh, it's me. You should be worshiping me, not all of these other people that you are worshiping. This story is Yahweh versus Pharaoh and Yahweh versus all of these other gods. And we see this in chapter 12. It says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. This is not just some party trick that God is doing. God is saying in a very calculated, very calculated way, I am better than any other option that you have. And Yahweh's goal in all this, we should not forget. And this doesn't necessarily make the story a whole lot more palatable, but I think it's important for us to know that from the very beginning, God has wanted to use Israel to bless the entire world. God has wanted Israel to be this beacon of hope for people, for other people. And one scholar says, insofar as Yahweh is concerned with conservation in the short term, it is not the conservation of nature or humanity in Egypt, but the conservation of Israel. Yahweh is concerned to take the world to its destiny and manifesting sovereignty over the world's power. Um, Pharaoh, in this particular context, is an aspect of moving towards that goal. God has to demonstrate his power and his sovereignty to get Israel out of this land so that Israel can be all that they need to be for us so that we ultimately can be sitting here in these seats and singing songs about Jesus and participating in the life of this community. These aspects of this story, it doesn't necessarily get us um, to a place where it's, it lacks difficulty, but when we can see in ancient eyes what's going on in this story and the questions that an ancient reader had that would be very different than the questions that we have, we might be able to pause and maybe freak out a bit less and see what's happening in the story of this passage before we start casting judgment on God according to our 21st century postmodern American standards. The last thing that I want to say about this, especially as we lead into our time of communion, for the Jews, this story is the story. The story of the Exodus, but also the story of the 10th plague. It becomes the basis for the Passover, which is one of these rituals that um, means so much, not only to uh, the ancient Israelites, but even modern day Jews here and now. And reading some of these verses in this passage, I'll go ahead and show you this as well, because the way that the story works out in, in Exodus, we see the announcement of the 10th plague, and then God launches into the instructions of the Passover. There's a delay before this actually works itself out. And then the story works itself out, and he goes back into the instructions of the Passover. This is something that's so important for Israel. Here's some verses. It says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land, This month will be the first month. It will be the first month of the year for you. Tell the whole Israelite community on the 10th day of this month that they must take a lamb from each household, a lamb per house. If a household is too small for a lamb, it should share one with a neighbor nearby. You should divide the lamb in proportion to the number of people who will be eating it. You should take a flawless year-old male, if anybody cares. Taking a year-old male would be the... Um, the, the goat or the uh, lamb of least consequence because the female goats were important for milking and the one-year-olds weren't really doing too much yet, but they were taking one that was perfect. 
You should keep close watch over until the 14th day. At twilight on that day, the whole assembled Israelite community should slaughter their lambs. They should take some of the blood and smear it on the two doorposts and on the beam over the door of the houses in which they are eating. That same night, they should eat the meat roasted over fire. They should eat it along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Don't eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted over fire with its head, legs, and internal organs. This is how you should eat it. You should be dressed with your sandals on your feet, your walking stick in your hand. You should eat the meal in a hurry. It is the Passover of the Lord. I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night and I'll strike down every oldest child in the land of Egypt, both humans and animals. I'll impose judgments on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be your sign on the houses where you live. Whenever I see the blood, I'll pass over you. No plague will destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is giving instructions to his people here ancient instructions, archaic instructions to sacrifice a lamb or a goat and to take the blood and wipe it on the door frames as a sign that when God passes through the land not to enter in, not to allow any of the life inside to be taken. And you're supposed to eat this in a hurried fashion because when Egypt, when this happens to them, they will want you to leave in haste. And this is part of the Passover ritual that's happening even now with the lamb and the herbs. And this is part of their history and part of their story where they can look back and see how God has delivered them. Now here's the tie for us. We have stories too. As a Christian community, we have Stories, and we have sacred meals, and we have symbolic uh, rituals that we enact. For us, we enact it each and every week. For us, it's not a story just about God bringing us um, from slavery and servitude into life. It's a story of Jesus, who for the authors of the New Testament, Jesus becomes the sacrificial lamb that's offered not just for one household, but for the entire world. And this meal that we celebrate together, this meal where Jesus instituted his broken body and his shed blood that was around the time of Passover, and Jesus seems to bring us to a different place of understanding where for us as Christians, we have a moment and we have an opportunity to remember the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. In the midst of all of the confusion, in the midst of the difficulties of this story, in the midst of our lack of understanding of who God is, not just as an ancient God in the way that he dealt with people, but perhaps right now as you sit here, your lack of understanding of who God is. I talked about the two things I hear most often, but one of the third things that I hear most often from you is, why is God so elusive? Why is it so difficult for me to have conversations with God? Why is it so difficult for me to hear from God? Why is it so difficult for me to feel God? I believe that in this meal, which here we are lucky to celebrate each and every week, that we have a moment, maybe not to feel, but to remember, to hold the broken body of Jesus in our hands and to dip it in the cup that represents his blood and to take that back and to consider the life that we have that's only through him that has allowed us to enter into these conversations where we're attempting to figure out who God is. And perhaps tonight, one of the questions that we could be asking is, God, what, it, what is it that you are calling 
us to do? What is it that you're calling us to remember? What is it that you're calling us to be for other people? In the midst of a world that is broken, how is it, God, that you can use us to bring healing and to bring hope and to be agents of forgiveness and restoration to this world? I don't bring us to this table to to run roughshod over the ancient rituals of Passover or the modern rituals of Passover, but I at least want us to see that in this moment that meant so much to ancient Israel, it brings us one step closer to understanding who Jesus is and what he has given for us that we might have life. So wherever you are in that journey, wherever you are in this moment, I would invite you to reflect And when you are ready, I would invite you to come up and to take some of the bread, to dip it in the cup and take it back to your seat. This table is wide open. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was eating with his friends. Some authors would even say that this is where they were celebrating their Passover. He took bread and he blessed it and he broke it, saying, this is my body that's broken for you. Jesus took new meaning to an ancient ritual. Passing this bread amongst his friends, allowing them to break it and to hold it and to touch it and to consider these words that didn't make a whole lot of sense to them at the time, but make a little bit more sense to us on this side of Easter. At the same meal, Jesus took the cup and he passed it amongst his friends saying, this is the blood of the new covenant that shed for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, this new covenant that you guys have been waiting for. This story of the past that we're here in this room remembering, the story of God bringing us into freedom and life and hope, this story that had its beginnings here but is is going to end with me, with my death and my resurrection for you. This is symbolic in this cup, this new covenant that we now no longer wait for but we experience each and every day. Though sometimes it's become too familiar and we've lost that sense of wonder and we've lost that sense of understanding because perhaps of ritual. But in this night, as we break the body and dip it into the blood of Jesus, may we too remember May we remember the Exodus. May we remember a God who demonstrates himself to be powerful over all other gods and all other kings and empires and all other things. May we remember the God who goes after those on the margins and the outskirts. May we remember the God who is on the side of the oppressed, who has opened up the floodgates to allow us to come in. May we remember that God back then. And we, may we see the culmination of that in Jesus as he dies Scripture says, for us, for our sins. And for those of you in the seats right now that can't fathom that and you can't begin to understand that, you can't begin to wrap your brain around that, that's good. But also don't keep yourself out of the story because this is available for you. Regardless of where you come from and what you do and what you have done and what you will do, Jesus says, I want you. So as we reflect and as we take time and as we consider the Passover and the institution of that in this terribly difficult story and as we see God's power and sovereignty and as we see Jesus and his death and his resurrection, may we consider these things and begin to walk down this carpet as a sign of pledging our allegiance, beginning to follow Jesus wherever it is that he is leading us. 
may tonight be a night and may tonight be a moment where we understand the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus in a different way that compels us to move, that compels us to go out into the community, that compels us to live in a different way as we pray to be conformed into the image of Jesus beginning right now. Thanks again for joining us. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to visit us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story is, there's room for you here. And again, if you'd like more information, please visit our website at restoresby.org. Hope to see you soon.